just wild about Harry. Sissel is a poet, but he is not a poet in the ordinary sense. His poems are written to be set to music, to be sung. His creative ability is largely responsible for American popular music being what it is today. His lyrics helped influence the American stage. Along with his partner composer, Eubie Blake, he wrote such memorable songs as I'm just wild about Harry. It's all your fault, and countless others. Noble Sissel, through his long and dedicated association with the USO during two world wars, proves that the language of music is an expression that can warm the soul, even under the most devastating circumstances. And welcome to episode one of season one of a podcast aptly named The Life and Times of Noble Sissel, an American History Lesson. Now, why did we name it that? Because Noble Sissel lived between 1889 and 1975. There was a whole lot of interesting American history that took place during the 86 years of his life. Now, who was Noble Sissel? You can Google him and find out all kinds of things. But this is an, a podcast put together by the family. Myself, Noble Sissel Jr., my sister Cynthia, my two sons, Noble III, and Christopher Noble. What we wanted to do was to share personal and family historical things about Noble Sissel's life, not only about what he did or what he witnessed, but what he was aware of as America grew through this period of post-slavery through 1970s and the Great War in Vietnam. I mean, he witnessed that, he had things to say, and he participated in things as a historian, as an entertainer, and as a community person living in New York City most of his life, Harlem in particular. Well, let's do a little background. First of all, Noble Sissel was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, July 10th, 1889. He shares the birthday with the uh, great 
Mary McLeod Bethune. And uh, what I what I'm hoping that you get out of this is that he was linked to so many people through so many ways. Initially, as an entertainer and a celebrity, who would use his talents and whatever he could bring to help other organizations and individuals. He did that all of his life, many, many years uh, in New York through the 1950s and 60s. Harlem Youth, that was a big thing in his life that he did when he was not performing. And if you understood how the music industry was in those days, the big band era was giving away to rock and roll. Whereas he would always tell me, I, I don't understand what they're saying, and but I love the beat. Well, as my grandchildren are going through this phase of music, I don't understand what they're saying, but I dig the beat. But that's a diversion that you will witness and hear many times with this podcast because his life reached out through so many ways and linked to so many things that were happening culturally, historically, but most importantly, humanitarian and civil rights. He understood that. He witnessed it. He had to confront it. He had to deal with whatever he was presented with as he traveled the country and the world. But I digress. Uh, I was playing this back a little earlier, and I sounded just like, well, I sounded like Smokey Robinson. And if Smokey's listening, last time I saw him was in a Denny's restaurant in Tampa. I think he was performing at the Hard Rock Casino. Anyway, loved you in 1962 in the Motown Review uh, at the Apollo Theater. But I digress. Again, let's, uh, let's go into Noble Sissel's early life in terms of what shaped and molded him into the gentleman he became. Well, as he said, when his dad named him Noble, that just about uh, set in motion what his life was going to be about. His father, who was born in slavery in Louisville, Kentucky, actually was in Lexington, Kentucky, in 1852. So I could say that, you know, my grandfather was born into slavery. Not many people walking around today can do that. But then again, it's not like I'm some young person. I'll just say I was born in the early 40s. The war had already started. However, I digress again. The, the, the story that he used to tell me was that his father, being a Methodist minister, very clear on that, a Methodist AME minister, grew up in Kentucky and after emancipation really took place, uh, they migrated to other parts of Kentucky, and he was married, but he became the minister in the group. And once they formed a church of sorts, they all came from the same plantation, the Cecil can, uh, Plantation in Kentucky. And so everybody took up the last name Cecil, C-E-C-I-L. Well, as my dad tells it, if you're the minister and everybody in the church is named Cecil, you've got to do something a little bit different, and that is change your name. So he came up with his name Cecil, S-I-S-S-L-E, and for the longest I thought we were the only Cecils in America, but then 
as Google and other things came about, you found out there are other sisters, black and white, uh, throughout this country, spelled the same way. However, he migrated to Indianapolis as a minister. Prior to that, he had been married and had three children, Richard, Mamie, and Lottie, Mamie being the oldest of the three. Before George Sissel, his name, moved to Indianapolis as a widower, he remarried uh, a young lady who was born right there in uh, Lexington. Her name was Martha Angeline, and he married her, and they moved to Indianapolis, where they had three children. So George had six children. The first child of the second wife was noble. Therefore, he was the oldest of the second three, but he was number four in line. And as he tells the story, he was well into grammar school before he learned that his three older siblings were not of the same mother, and he was very upset. And in fact, he got into a fight at school when some of the kids teased him about that. And then when he went home, his mother had to explain the real deal. And uh, it, it didn't bother him, but it was amazing to learn that, you know, your three oldest uh, had another mother. So uh, they got along fine, and, uh, but they were, they, they were much older. And uh, as they went through life, Noble became the, the one child who was in charge of the other two younger ones, Martha, Ruth, and Andrew, because the others had grown up, gotten married, moved on, had families, what have you. Now, Reverend George, being the minister and raising uh, all these children, he also moved up in the ranks of the Methodist Church, and he got positioned in Cleveland. So they moved from Indianapolis to Cleveland, where my dad grew up and went to high school. And it was there that he always said Indianapolis was a very racist area. Cleveland was a little bit better. Where they lived in Cleveland, they had white and black neighbors. His best friends were white. And as he went through school, he got interested into uh, athletics, playing baseball and football. An injury took him out of the football, so he pretty much stayed with baseball. But it was a it was a great thing that he was able to get along with not only student athletes, but when he found out that there might be an opportunity to join the high school, Central High School, Cleveland, choir. He was nervous because he'd been singing all of his life, and we'll talk more about that. But he was hesitant about trying to go out for this choir. you got to understand there were 1,500 students at Central High. There were only six African Americans. So, you you know, you pretty much uh, you got along, but you just didn't push yourself too much because you just didn't know. Plus, he had parents at home who said, you know, you will not get in trouble and start trouble. So he was very hesitant about that. But 
he tells the story that one day uh, down the hall in the school, one of the teachers said, Noble, you sing. I, I hear you sing in your father's church. Why aren't you in the choir? And my dad would say, well, I didn't want to go down there and get put out. So but if you think I have a chance, could you, like, open the door and, you know, speak to the director? He says, sure. And uh, you'll hear in some episodes later, he actually said, once I got in there and started singing, they couldn't put me out because I was one of the best voices in the choir. But that pretty much got him into his musical career, although growing up, singing in his father's church, dealing with all kinds of programs. I mean, from the age of six on up, he had this wonderful tenor voice, and it was pretty much conceived that he was going to be a minister. Father was very strict, but he he had to live up to this name, Noble. And therefore, in fact, he told me, uh, name you Noble, sir. If you could just live up to that first name, you'll be okay. So I just passed it on to the other two boys. But in growing up in Cleveland, he made his way through high school and uh, enjoyed quite a reputation as a singer. But because he got injured, he became the yell master. And that's the guy that walks around with the big megaphone and just hoops it up among the dancers at a dance and 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 just lifts the spirits up uh, after a game or at some prom or what have you. So he became like a little personality that way. And then he started writing songs and yells and cheers for the school. So suddenly he became well-known and well-liked. And Although he couldn't play uh, football, they really wanted him to kind of be like on the team. So he was the yell master for the team. And so when they took their team photo, there he was right in the middle. While everyone is dressed in their uniforms, he's sitting there with a bow tie and a, tuck and a coat because he's not really a player, but he was there. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about the reason for the podcast and what it hopefully will achieve. Now... Noble Sissel, and I'm speaking as though he was just a gentleman who I read about and not use the word, well, dad did this and dad did that, because that's not even the way he referred to his achievements. It was always a we, and it was always how they did something. It was another I did this and I did that. He was, to me, a historian because he wrote a lot. I mean, paper and pen and a pencil sometimes, but a pen mostly. And then sometime in the early 50s, mid-50s, he got himself a royal typewriter. Hey, that's one of the names of my grandson, royal. Anyway, he got a royal manual, and then I think he eventually moved up to electric. And during this period of time, he was living with his nephew, his brother's son, Paul. Now, Paul, being a, a nephew, was not very much younger than him because his brother Richard was much older. And by the time he had Paul, my dad was pretty much like 10 or 11 years old. So there's like a 12 or 14 year difference between Noble and his nephew, Paul. But Paul moved to New York in the early 40s. And he and my dad were housemates uh, based on my father being a divorcee. And we'll go into that in other episodes. But Paul lived with him. And Paul 
met a young lady named Elizabeth, and Paul and my dad lived on Edgecombe Avenue in New York, and Elizabeth, or Betty, lived on St. Nicholas Avenue, 935 at 157th Street. Now, that's pretty much a famous building because Duke Ellington was already living there. He was there from the late 30s till when he moved out in the 60s, I believe, or 70s. But when Paul and Betty married, they had to look at who had the larger apartment, and it was Betty. She had a three-bedroom. But Paul told Betty, uh, you know, my my uncle has to come with me because, you know, we live together. And Betty said, noble sisters, your uncle, of course he can move. So Paul and Noble moved in. And from that point in the early 40s, mid-40s, to the time everyone passed away, 935 St. Nicholas was that New York home base. And so Paul kind of took care of him, but they were like brothers. They weren't that much difference in age. But Paul's father, Richard, had passed away so many years ago. So dad was pretty much his father. So anyway, that's where they lived for many years. And as we went through stages of life, my sister and I, we'd always come back to New York City because 935 was was headquarters. Well, as the big band era was fading out in the 50s, giving away to rock and roll, my dad, who had always been given the opportunity to speak and talk about the old days in the turn of the century in the 20s and the Harlem Renaissance era, which he was a part of, he he wrote speeches for himself. Plus, he discovered a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And why not get some very large tapes and just start talking about what happened and what you witnessed and some of the backstories? And he did that. So over the years, he accumulated, I would say, many papers because as he typed, making copies in those days, you used the old carbon and the onion skin paper and make three copies of everything you type era and all. And so over the years, these became his papers, plus what he had accumulated. Now, his partner, U.B. Blake, and that will be many episodes down the road, his partner, U.B. Blake, lived in Brooklyn and had a brownstone with more room. They had floors and space. So as they accumulated things as a vaudeville act and, and just as lifelong partners, they never broke up as opposed to something I've read. They split in 1931 when Cecil wanted to go back to Europe. They never stopped. What stopped was the Vaudeville Act, and Vaudeville was ending anyway, although it you know, it lasted through the 40s and early 50s. But they always wrote songs together, not putting out three songs a week kind of writing. But Blake had space, so... As they start accumulating artifacts and papers and samples of programs and what have you, it all ended up at Blake's house because Dad had one bedroom, and in time, he had two filing cabinets with a total of eight file drawers. So that's where his memorabilia stayed at over the years. In 1973, when it looked like he could not uh, pretty much live in New York and still get around. Betty was just saying, your dad still thinks it's the 1940s and he just will go out. I don't know where he goes to, but he goes downtown and, you know, and so it was time to move dad from New York City, 935 St. Nicholas. 
Well, how do you do that? Well, Dad, you know I'm living in Florida, and I'm post-military, and I'm working, and moved to this city called Tampa. You need to come down here for a while and work on your papers. And the word papers was the key, because he knew he had accumulated so many things, had written so many things, that were pretty much still in the filing cabinets, not being published, and yet it's history, it's first-hand history. So I moved him to Tampa, and for the better part of uh, two years, before he passed away in 75, he he had a chance to just kind of look over, assimilate, and kind of put things in order for me, because I'm working and eventually married with children and and you know, I'm trying to get a whole career going, yet we have turn-of-the-century things going on in his papers. So he worked on them as best he could, and we had a good time. I referred to it as Sanford and Son because I became the father, and who am I to tell him what to do? But it was time to do that. But we spent a great amount of time together. He's always been an avid fisherman all his life. There's plenty of stories about him fishing everywhere across the country, wherever the band was. He and his his bass player, Jimmy Jones, if there was a body of water somewhere, they're going fishing. And we did a lot of that in the freshwater and saltwater here in the Tampa area. So we had a we had a great time before he passed away in, in uh, 1975. So what I'm hoping to share with the public or the one listener or the 10 listeners in time, maybe many, is some of the fascinating things that were a part of his life that I say a part of American history. Not necessarily African American, but mostly. As things developed, as he as he uh, you know matured and became a celebrity in New York in the twenties, now we're talking a hundred years ago, that he rubbed shoulders with the big time folks. Post World War One, all those Wall Street people who went over and had commands and came back colonels and what have you. They became the big folks of Wall Street and downtown and all the big hotels and you name it. He was a part of that. And those are stories that are fascinating, how he accessed them and how they accepted him and what he did with it. Before I close out, this this episode one is to go up at 8 p.m. on the uh, 23rd of May, a Sunday here in America. Because at 8 p.m. on May 23rd, 1921, the curtain went up on Shuffle Along. And if you had Google's Noble Sissel, Shuffle Along comes up as the thing that pretty much kicked off, according to Langston Hughes, the Harlem Renaissance. So we are into this hundredth year of things now with Noble Sissel's life. And we think it interesting, entertaining, and informative for those who might listen. And what we want to do is to guide you to go and find details of things, not necessarily just what Noble Sissel did, but what he was a part of and what he witnessed and how it affected him and how it affected the community that he lived in. So we hope with using a lot of his recordings, his music recordings from the 20s through the big band era, because he did create an orchestra when he was in Europe and came back to America as the toast of two continents. And that just opened doors and sprung things open for a lot of other people. 
and we'll name drop as we go along. But there are other episodes also that we want to play some of his rare recordings, the home recordings, where he's talking about specific things. And we'll see if we can link it to other historical factors. You heard the opening, which was brought to you by a film strip, Profiles in Black Achievement by Guidance Associates, our good friend Sandra Rabin, who produced that back in 73. We were able to find some music, and that was the great Adolf Caesar, whose voice you heard. And we're going to close with a recording and taping session that my dad did with an unknown innovator genius named Perry Bradford, where he wanted to tell the story of Perry Bradford. And one of the days that he was actually sitting in the living room area at 935 with Perry recording the story, it became an album uh, using a lot of the recordings that Perry was a part of that showed early jazz and how it morphed into other things. But I just happened to be there probably from school somewhere. And I sat there in the uh, hallway with the uh, tape recorder, turning it on and off. And turns out that my dad gave me credit. So I'm going to end this podcast and every podcast with that recording backed up by the song, I'll Be Ready When the Great Day Comes. And you'll see how he, he thanks everybody and also gives me a little bit of credit. So again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Seven days from now, wherever you are, another Sunday night episode. Thank you. Hope we'll all be ready when the great day comes and the saints come marching in. Well, this is Nova Sissel signing off. I'd like to give credit to my son, Nova Sissel Jr., who is my assistant in putting this story together. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. Yes, good Lord, I'll be ready when the great day comes. I'll be ready.